0: I'm Apollo Sixteen Astronaut Charlie Duke, the tenth man to walk on the moon. And you got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. This is The Space Show, Australia, on 88.3 Southern FM.
1: Welcome to The Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I'm Andrew Rennie. On this week's The Space Show, Artemis 1 has been declared ready for its Monday evening launch. This will be the maiden flight of the 100-metre-tall Space Launch System rocket. And this evening, we describe the science experiments to be carried aboard this flight around the moon. Let's
2: take a trip to the moon
3: Come on, let's
4: go for the moon how go to the moon
1: Let's take a trip to the moon Yes, the Artemis One mission is on track, <laughs> at this moment anyway, uh, for launch on Monday. Of course, in rocketry, you never can be sure. The launch window opens at 10.37pm on Monday evening, Australian Eastern Standard Time. That's the time we keep here in Melbourne. The NASA commentary will begin two hours before that at 8.30. And uh, there's a two-hour window in which they can launch. In other words, until uh, around about half past midnight on Tuesday morning. (laughs) Then um, if it's not launched by then, then they have a backup date of September the 3rd. And that backup time, the uh, launch window opens at 2.48 a.m. So that's uh, September the 3rd, forty eight a.m. for the backup window. That's a two-hour window. For, again, if it's not launched within that two hours, then another backup exists on September the 6th at 7.12 a.m. And that's a 90-minute window, one-and-a-half-hour window. Now, if it's not off by then, then they'll have to roll the stack back to the vehicle assembly building to change the flight termination system batteries, which cannot be recharged on the pad. Now, the flight termination system is basically a system of explosives that will blow the rocket up should it go off course so if it doesn't go in the right direction then they can blow it up and so it doesn't sort of hit Orlando or Titusville or Miami or somewhere like that so there we go now if it's not off by as I said September 6th they roll back to the VAB change the batteries and roll it back out to the pad again and the next chance is between September the 20th and October the 4th and if they can't get it away by then, they have another opportunity between October 17 and 31. So all at the moment, is always looking good for a launch at 10.37 on Monday evening. So uh, we'll bring you the news about that on next week's The Space Show. Now, we go to an event that was held last week at NASA headquarters In Washington DC.
2: Hello everyone and welcome to today's teleconference on the lunar science secondary payloads flying on NASA's Artemis 1 mission. I'm Rachel Kraft with NASA's Office of Communications. Artemis 1 will be an uncrewed flight test that will provide a foundation for human exploration in deep space and demonstrate our commitment and capability to extend human existence to the moon and eventually Mars. The agency is currently targeting no earlier than Monday, August 29th, for the launch of the Space Launch System rocket to send the Orion spacecraft around the moon and back to Earth. Today, you'll hear from people who have developed and built CubeSats, small satellites that will ride to space inside an adapter ring on the rocket called the Orion Stage Adapter, to primarily investigate the lunar environment. After the Orion spacecraft is flying on its own toward the moon, these shoebox-sized CubeSats will be deployed from dispensers on the adapter ring. While CubeSats each come with risk to their own individual missions, they yield high potential to fill gaps in our knowledge of the solar system.
1: Uh, Jacob Bleacher is the Chief Exploration Scientist at NASA.
4: Uh, And It's a pleasure to be here this afternoon to speak to everybody. Um, you know, we're at the beginning of an exciting adventure, an adventure to explore the moon, but not only to explore the moon, to learn about our place in an evolving universe. Our moon serves as basically a celestial library right next door. From here, we can begin to research our history lunar rocks and lunar ice basically serve as the books of this library. We can use them to learn, to read them, and to begin to reveal how the solar system has evolved. This can really help us gain insight into what was happening here on Earth when life was establishing a foothold in the solar system. Here on Earth, the very characteristics that make life possible, for instance our atmosphere and water, well those are the same characteristics that tend to erase those pieces of our planet's history. However, at the moon, the same characteristics that challenge the existence of life are the same characteristics that have helped preserve evidence of our history. For instance, not having an atmosphere. Everything that's happened there has left a trace. But those are the traces we can't find here on Earth. Not only can we learn about our Earth-Moon system, but learning from the moon will help set the scientific context from which we can interpret our observations from across the solar system. Artemis 1 will test our spacecraft and hardware that we'll use to carry astronauts to the moon. Additionally, Artemis 1 will enable us to test the use of CubeSats as secondary payloads that can be delivered beyond low Earth orbit like most other CubeSats are. One of the great things about the payloads we'll be talking about today the number of organizations both inside and outside of NASA that are coming along in this flight with us. Payloads or instruments on ARMS-1 reflect contributions from across our agency. They include five international partners and partnerships with a number of universities and industry and other research institutions. CubeSats are a lower cost approach to capturing scientific measurements. They're high risk but high reward And each successful measurement, these Artemis CubeSats uh, can add to our knowledge to the moon and how we travel in deep space. This demonstrates the collaborative nature of science and exploration. I often like to say that science is our toolbox for survival during exploration. These CubeSats will provide new understanding of the lunar environment, which in turn will help us better design our exploration systems, help keep our crew safe, and help hardware survive longer at the moon. So this really is an exciting time as we uh, get ready for this adventure.
1: Now, Lunar Flashlight was one of 13 small satellites selected to be launched by the first of the big Space Launch System rockets, Artemis 1, at that time scheduled for launch in 2018. Now, lunar flashlight was to look for ice deposits on the moon and identify locations where resources may be extracted from the lunar surface. It would do so by projecting a laser beam down into shadow craters and looking at the reflected light. Unfortunately... It was not built in time for the Artemis One missions and will now be launched on the Intuitive Machines IM-1 mission in December of this year. Now, Craig Hardgrave is the principal investigator of one of these CubeSats called Lunar HMap. He's from Arizona State University and gave us this description.
5: Lunar Map was the... First uh, Simplex mission, selected through NASA's Science Mission Directorate. It's a a new type of mission uh, for NASA, but it follows a similar structure to uh, previous uh, missions that are much larger, where we have a a PI that is a planetary scientist that proposes a a large science question, in our case about the moon, and we uh, execute a mission to conduct uh, addressing that question. And so as the first um, Simplex selection, Uh, We're really a pathfinder for navigating a lot of the challenges that come along with uh, doing a a big science mission uh, on a very small satellite. Um, And so we've we've known for quite some time that there's water ice at the moon's poles, uh, but there are a lot of unanswered questions about how much there is and where exactly it is. Most of it is within these permanently shadowed regions at the South Pole. These are some of the coldest locations in the entire solar system, and they may have never seen sunlight. And it's the only place on the moon where we know that water ice really would be stable for prolonged periods of time. Um, There's evidence that there may be ice uh, within the sunlit plains Uh, that might be stable for millennia in those regions. But we simply don't have high enough resolution data of both poles of the moon to really address some of these questions, Um, and so that's where LunaMap came in. And in order to do that, we're using a a tried-and-true technique called neutron spectroscopy. Um, NASA has actually flown two neutron instruments to the moon before, um, but with LunaMap, we're enabled, uh, because we're one science instrument on such a small spacecraft, we're able to plan the mission and navigate into a very low-altitude south pole orbit so that we can pass over these regions of the South Pole and reveal whether or not there are enrichments of ice only within the permanently shadowed regions or if the ice actually extends out into the illuminated plains. And this will tell us really important constraints about um, how water was delivered into the inner solar system, how much water was there uh, at the Moon's formation. It also tells us how water is redistributed across the Moon from subsequent impacts and meteorite bombardment. Um, so it's it's really an important um, element of uh, the Artemis program to understand how much ice is at the pole, both for future exploration missions, both with humans as well as robots, um, uh, to understand how to plan future missions at the scale of a landing ellipse, uh, so we know where to go to find these ice enrichments, um, as well as uncovering sort of uh, how the, the evolution of the moon evolved is uh, with respect to Uh, water ice mobilizing on the surface um, of the moon.
1: At last week's uh, news conference, Craig Hargrave was asked about the deployment of Lunar HMAP.
5: Lunar MAP deploys from uh, SLS about five and a half hours after launch. Uh, We should have a first contact from the spacecraft within about 30 minutes of deployment. Um, Beyond that, we will spend about the next uh, four or five days um, performing a lunar gravity assist to fly by the moon. Um, If we successfully hit that gravity assist, we go out to uh, about a million and a half miles past the moon and back. That takes about four months. Um, And then we transition, once we're captured at the moon, into a science orbit that takes us about 12 months. So all told, our mission would be about uh, 14 or 15 months long. Um, with the last part, the science phase, being about um, two to four months long.
1: And we'll have more about Lunar HMAP later in the program. Now, Skyfire was one of those 13 CubeSats selected to be launched by the first Space Launch System rocket. As I said, that was um, to to have been in 2018, but now set for later this month, in fact, next Monday. A CubeSat is a satellite measuring tens of centimetres on each side. And this particular one will be built by Lockheed Martin in Denver, Colorado. And Skyfire will perform a lunar flyby of the Moon taking sensor data to enhance our knowledge of the lunar surface. Since selection it has been renamed LUN-IR and will now use infrared technology to do spectroscopic and thermography of the Moon. Joseph Schoer is the architect for small satellite missions at Lockheed Martin, and he had this description of Lune IR.
6: We're looking forward to the Artemis One launch, not just to return astronauts to the Moon, but to start building up an eventual full-scale lunar economy, CubeSats like Lunir and other spacecraft on this call today are a new and different way to learn more about Earth's nearest neighbor and what challenges it could pose for future human missions. They're also an opportunity to prove out technologies that could be useful for future lunar science. So I'd like to talk briefly about Lockheed Martin's CubeSat catching a ride on the Artemis I mission, LuniAR. The Lunar project is a public-private partnership through NASA's Next Space Technologies for Exploration Partnerships, or Next Step program. Next Step is run through the Advanced Exploration Systems group at NASA and is focused on technology demonstrations. Lunar is one of these. Uh, it's short for Lunar Infrared and for its technology demonstration mission, LunIR aims to conduct a flyby of the Moon and prove out an ultra-compact, novel infrared camera by taking a series of images that observe the lunar surface and its thermal signatures. What makes this imager particularly useful is that it can map the Moon in both day and night and measure things like the way sunlight is reflected or absorbed by the Moon's surface. We're hoping to see how well this imaging technology works so that it might be applied for things like future planetary scouting missions. And in addition, the types of thermal data IR would look for could eventually be critical in helping identify water on the moon, which in turn drives selection of things like future lunar landing sites or outpost locations. Uh, One of the challenges that these lunar CubeSats face is packing a lot of technology into a very small volume. And one example on LUNIR is that infrared sensors typically need to be accompanied by a cooling system so that they uh, give good performance uh, in in the images they return. And because of its complex—excuse me—because of its compact size, LUNIR has the lightest long-life space cryocooler ever built by the Advanced Technology Center uh, in Palo Alto. This is an example of just one of the types of challenges that we have to engineer for on these uh, high-risk, high-reward missions. So, LunaR was funded by Lockheed Martin uh, with the launch provided by NASA. Uh, Lockheed Martin's Optical Payload Center of Excellence in Sunnyvale, California built the infrared imager and our Advanced Technology Center in Palo Alto, California built that cryocooler that I mentioned. The Lunar 6U CubeSat bus was built, tested, and integrated by Terran Orbital in Irvine, California. And on the whole, Lockheed Martin is really excited to be part of NASA's efforts around the moon from designing, building, and testing the Orion spacecraft to proving out new technology with IR, and even participating in future lunar imaging missions like Lunar Trailblazer and beyond. So I'm eager to see how what we learn now with all of these missions uh, across the different size classes can be applied as, as uh, uh, future lessons learned when human- humanity has a, a growing number of assets at the moon. Lunar IR is a pretty quick mission. We are a, a lunar flyby, so after yeah, we we deploy from the launch vehicle about six and a half hours after launch. Um, we'll do some demonstration activities with our sensor pretty quickly after that, and then we fly past the moon where we do most of our uh, images image taking of the moon, uh, and then downlink the data from that. So it's a pretty it's a pretty short Uh, Timeline. Uh, We are not planning for the mission to last longer than 30 days.
1: On this week's The Space Show, we are looking at the Artemis 1 mission science payloads, mainly the CubeSats that are being carried aboard the mission, which is due for launch on Monday evening. Lunar science.
4: and powdery, I can pick it up loosely with my toe, it does adhere in
7: fine layers, like powdered circle, to the sole and the sides of my boots, but I can see footprint of my boots and the tread and the fine sandy particle.
1: Welcome to Lunar Science the series in which we discuss the scientific investigation of the Moon and its environment in the Artemis era. Yes, the space show is pleased to announce a new 54-part series called Lunar Science. This is not about spaceships and astronauts. It is about the science to be done on and near the moon during the Artemis project and the supporting unmanned missions. To find these programs visit space.southernfm.com.au then scroll down until you see the lunar science link. Once again, Lunar Science is available online at space.southernfm.com.au. Southern
4: FM,
8: the sounds of the Bayside.
7: Fly me to the moon and let me play among the stars.
9: Bring is light on Jupiter and Mars.
1: Lunar Ice Cube is one of 13 CubeSats selected to be launched by the first of NASA's big new rockets, the Space Launch System. Now this satellite has been built by Moorhead State University of Kentucky. Its task will be to go into a low orbit of only 100 kilometers above the surface of the moon to search for water ice. Now, as I have said earlier in the program, the first Space Launch System rocket was originally planned to be launched in 2018, but is now <laughs> hopefully going to happen on Monday, this coming Monday. Now, only 10 of the originally selected 13 Cube sets will actually be flown. This feature describes one of the instruments on Lunar Ice Cube.
3: As the Artemis mission's journey to the moon, finding and understanding water will be key to establishing a renewed presence there. Water is critical to life and can be broken into hydrogen and oxygen, which can serve as rocket fuel. The Lunar Ice Cube mission, led by Moorhead State University, will carry a NASA instrument called BIRCHES to investigate water ice on the moon. Lunar Ice Cube is a small satellite designed to provide observations at diverse lunar regions to better understand the moon's water cycle. NASA scientists will use BIRCHES data to understand where water is, what its origins are, and how we can use it. BIRCHES will also help map water in the exosphere, an extremely thin volume of atmosphere surrounding the moon. Scientists are interested in understanding the absorption and release of water in the moon's regolith, dust, and rocks on the lunar surface. This research will help scientists and engineers better understand changes to water on the moon over time. Birches uses a similar technology that flew on the OSIRIS-REx mission, which studied the asteroid Bennu. However, Birch's has been miniaturized to one-sixth the mass of the instrument on OSIRIS-REx and is roughly the size of an eight-inch tissue box. The Lunar Ice Cube spacecraft and Birch's instrument will launch as a secondary payload on the Artemis I mission, helping pave the way for future crewed exploration missions to the lunar surface.
1: And that musical feature from the Goddard Space Flight Center. Now back to last week's press conference, where we're going to hear from Ben Malfris, the principal investigator for Lunar Ice Cube.
10: This is Ben Malfris, the principal investigator on the Lunar Ice Cube mission. CubeSats are going to the moon. It is such an exciting time. Uh, We really feel like we're at the beginning of a new era of space exploration one that's ushered in and supported by small satellite platforms like these CubeSats on the Artemis mission. Uh, Lunar Ice Cube is a partnership between Warhead State University, the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, the NASA Independent Verification and Validation Center over in West Virginia, and the BUSEC Space Propulsion Company. Like the other CubeSats on Artemis One, Lunar Ice Cube is a 6U CubeSat Uh, 14 kilograms or so, about the size of a carry-on piece of luggage. And the science mission for Lunar Ice Cube is to uh, prospect for water ice. The interesting thing to me is that along with um, Lunamap and uh, others on the Artemis One mission, we're uh, creating really the first ad hoc lunar constellation of satellites that are uh, targeting um, common observations, common targets, and producing uh, uh, very um, complementary science data. Uh, specifically, Lunar Ice Cube is looking for water ice in liquid and vapor forms and other lunar volatiles we, we have the sensitivity to, to see, um, but specifically looking at the distribution of, of water ice uh, from the mid-latitudes uh, to, uh, to the PSRs, so the permanently shadowed regions, uh, where it, it tends to, to collect. Um, so Lunar Ice Cube is actually a science mission um, and a tech demo mission. There are a number of really innovative, unusual technologies that um, are sort of enabling technologies that allow us to do this kind of science with with small um, small platforms. Um, the instrument is a very innovative instrument built by NASA Goddard. It's um, an infrared, infrared spectrometer. We call it the, the Birch's uh, Spectrometer. Um, has excellent uh, sensitivity in the one to four micron range, where we'll we'll, we'll see the uh, water ice line in absorption. Uh, there are other technologies like um, an electric propulsion system, very innovative propulsion system. It's an RF ion electric propulsion system developed by uh, by BUSEC, and there are a number of other uh, enabling technologies. But together uh, with the infrared spectrometer and these other enabling technologies, we hope to contribute to. Some of the um, un- unknown elements of the strategic knowledge gaps uh, related to the moon and lunar volatiles. Uh, for, for Lunar Ice Cube, uh, it's uh, fairly similar to the others. We're more or less a two year mission. We get deployed at bus stop one, three hours or so later, we have our first contact. We have a series of Deterministic maneuvers to set us up for lunar flyby about five days uh, after launch but the interesting thing beyond that is uh, We go on a long circuitous route using the interplanetary superhighway for about 180 days We go as far out as 1.8 million kilometers from the earth and then we fall back to the earth moon system uh, in the right dynamic state to undergo a capture Uh, We'll stay in the near rectilinear halo orbit for a TBD period of time and then we'll dive into a science orbit And you know, why does it take so long uh, to get to the moon when you know, we go flying by the moon in in five days? uh, But we can only carry 1.3 kilograms of propellant so You can't turn around and and thrust in the anti-velocity direction to extract energy and go directly into lunar capture. So we go on this long circuitous route that allows us to utilize uh, our low thrust engines, extraordinarily low amount of propellant, and basically the laws of physics of the solar system to allow us to get into uh, a lunar orbit. So you have to be a little bit more patient, but with one, a little over a kilogram of propellant, Uh, we can still get into a a very appropriate science orbit that takes us about 100 kilometers, uh, by the way,
1: above
7: the the lunar surface.
1: Tatsuaki Hashimoto is the project manager of a (coughs) satellite. His name will be explained in a moment. He's from the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency. Uh,
9: Thank you. Uh, I'm Tatsuaki Hashimoto from JAXA, project manager of uh, Motenashi. Uh, The name of Omotenashi comes from outstanding moon exploration technologies demonstrated by nano-semi-hard impactor. Uh, Sorry for a long name. Uh, As the name shows, it is a challenge for the world's smallest moon lander. Uh, There is no room to be equipped with uh, landing sensors or precisely control liquid propulsion system on a CubeSat. So, Omotenashi uses a solid rocket motor for the acceleration and adopts semi-hard landing technology, uh, not soft landing. Uh, Its remaining landing speed will be around 50 meters per second, so uh, we needed to develop shock absorption technologies a uh, crushable material, and an uh, epoxy filling of the instrument box. Moreover, uh, to reduce the landing mass, the spacecraft separates uh, in orbit just before landing. Omotenashi uh, has also an ultra-small radiation monitor and measures the radiation environment of Earth-Moon region. Uh, it is remod- remodeled uh, from the portable radiation monitor developed after Fukushima nuclear plant accident. Its weight is about 20 gram. And uh, uh, Omotenashi itself is not a science mission, uh, but its demonstrated technologies will enable future small surface uh, science missions. And. Uh, Uh, After launch, on the second day, Omotenasi will conduct orbital maneuver to put into lunar uh, impact orbit. The trajectory is carefully designed so as to maximize the probability of landing success. The ignition timing of solid rocket motor is very important, so we will conduct precise orbit determination for a few days uh, on the sixth or sixth day Omotenasi will land a moon. Omotenasi's mission is about uh, less than one week, about uh, five days, like so. Yeah. Uh, yeah, after separated from SLS, uh, Omotenasi change will be to impact to the moon and directly go to the moon and land. And uh, after landing, uh, its lifetime will be about a few minutes because of the summer conditions or something like that. Ryu Finais
1: is the project manager of Equilus and he's also from the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency.
11: Okay, uh, I'm Ryu Lasit from JAXA and I'm the project manager of Equilus. So let me uh, give you an overview of the Equilus mission. Equilus and also Omotenashi introduced earlier Uh, our Jack's second mission to send a micro or nano spacecraft into deep space beyond the moon so we are very grateful to nasa for providing us with this uh, valuable launch opportunity into deep space the primary mission of eculus is to expand the capability of cubesat in deep space by demonstrating trajectory control techniques within the sun earth moon region in this mission, we aim to efficiently reach a periodic orbit around the second Lagrange point of the Earth-Moon system by utilizing lunar gravity assist and solar gravity. This orbit control technology will enable a CubeSat-class spacecraft with uh, limited resources to depart from a future deep space port, such as Lunar Orbital Platform Gateway, and fly into deep space with its own propulsion system. It will contribute to greatly expanding uh, our opportunities for future science missions around the Moon and beyond. To accomplish this mission, we developed and installed a new propulsion system using water as a propellant. Water is, you know, an extremely safe and non-toxic propellant, and if this propulsion system is demonstrated, it will. Uh, improve CubeSat mission capability while, uh, and ensuring safety for various future rideshare launch opportunities. In addition to the technology demonstration mission explained so far, EQUILES will conduct three other scientific observation missions. One is an imaging mission of the Earth's plasma sphere and uh, from a far distance from the Earth, ECOS will observe the whole view of the large structure of helium ion in the Earth's plasma sphere. This will contribute to the better understanding of the physical process which governs the terrestrial plasma of the Earth. The second is the mission to image and characterize the lunar impact of flashes. This observation will monitor the moon's surface and detect the flash of light emitted by the high-velocity meteorites which impact on the moon's surface. And this mission will characterize the flux of such meteorites in order to contribute to the risk evaluation for the future human activity or infrastructure on the moon surface. The third one is a mission to detect cosmic dust and evaluate the dust environment in the cislunar space. This observation is made possible uh, without the need for extra resources from the spacecraft uh, by integrating thin film dust detectors into the inside of the spacecraft blank. In addition to the Tech Demo mission to enhance the capability of Deep Space CubeSat, as I explained earlier, these three science missions are expected to deepen our understanding of the radiation environment around the Earth, and also the spatial distribution of the solid objects, such as meteorites and dust in the Earth's most uh, region.
1: So just remember, you heard it first on the space show. There are steam engines in space, or so at least there will be on Monday. So
11: uh, Echoes is the first uh, CubeSat to be deployed from SLS Artemis One, and uh, just after the the separation, we will have DSN contact pass to uh, where we will verify the uh, health status of the spacecraft, and after that, we will conduct trajectory correction maneuver. To target a spacecraft to our nominal trajectory, after uh, performing lunar flyby, we will conduct the deep space flight to the lunar Lagrange point uh, that will uh, take about one year or so. And after that, we will enter into the our mission orbit around the Lagrange point and uh, conduct uh, science mission.
1: Earlier in the show, we promised to return to Craig Hardgrove, the principal investigator for Lunar HMap. He's also assistant professor at the School of Earth and Space Exploration at Arizona State University. Although he's just going to tell you that this is something that he said in July of
5: 2020. Hi, uh, this is Craig Hardgrove. I'm an assistant professor at the ASU School of Earth and Space Exploration, and I'm the principal investigator for LunaMap, the Lunar Polar Hydrogen Mapper uh, mission. Uh, We were the first Simplex uh, mission collection back in 2015. Uh, So we are manifested along with 12 other uh, CubeSats on SLS Artemis 1, And our mission is to map South Pole hydrogen enrichments uh, within and outside of the permanently shattered regions uh, at spatial scales of around or less than 20 square kilometers. Uh, and in order to do so, uh, we needed to design a new type of neutron spectrometer for a small spacecraft. Uh, and the spacecraft will have its own navigation uh, and communications back to Earth using the Deep Space Network. So uh, we will navigate uh, into lunar orbit uh, after deployment from the SOS. So it's a it's a tall order for such a very small spacecraft. So this is uh, actually some of the motivation for the mission. Uh, this is a, a, a neutron derived uh, hydrogen, a map of the South Pole of the Moon, made with uh, Lunar Prospector's Neutron Spectrometer. At uh, fairly coarse spatial resolution. And one of the unique things about neutron spectroscopy is it provides uh, an integrated view of the top meter of lunar regolith. And LUNAMAP will be focusing primarily on uh, epithermal neutrons, which are down to about 40 centimeters or so. So we're getting a, a view of um, the more of the bulk as opposed to just the surface or optical surface of the of the lunar regolith. Uh, they're very, uh, very core spatial resolutions. These are sort of what we're planning to focus on the regions of uh, focus for a lunar map. Um, one of the things we want to map is resolving the, the hydrogen within permanently shadowed craters as well as outside of permanently shadowed craters to understand if the contributions from previous uh, neutron measurements with their course resolution was perhaps um, incorporating Uh, Hydrogen within the permanently shattered regions in some of those areas in the previous maps that that showed enrichments uh, in the areas outside of PSRs. So Our trajectory design, we deploy from SLS in that little number one, and we go out to the weak stability boundary uh, and come back. We use a little ion propulsion system, uh, provides a very weak uh, thrust, but it's very high ISP, so we have enough fuel Uh, in about the size of a tissue box propulsion system to get ourselves back into lunar capture. Uh, Depending on the Earth-Moon-Sun position of the SLS launch, that can take uh, anywhere up to a year, but as short as uh, four to five months, depending on uh, the the launch uh, trajectory. The other thing I'd point out is we fly very low over the South Pole, so we'll make only over the South Pole. And we'll be operating the spacecraft from ASU. Thank you. 88.3 88.3 Southern FM.
8: On air and online via the free Community Radio Plus app. Download it now from the App Store or Google Play. I saw the present.
1: Another of the CubeSats to be launched by Artemis One on Monday evening is called Team Miles. Wesley Fahler is the team lead for Team Miles. So
5: Team Miles CubeSat, we're going to deep space about 8 million kilometers from Earth, where our CubeSat will measure deep space weather using student-provided STEM experiments. And we'll showcase new communication software we invented for extreme range communication. Now, our spacecraft was built by a volunteer group, um, actually uh, mostly IT professionals, students, two artists, and uh, one very patient aerospace engineer. Our craft was built largely from scratch in order to save money, um, all with the hopes of winning part of NASA's CubeQuest Challenge Contest which is how our craft got on Artemis in the first place.
1: In the previous program, we have described the NEA Scout, the Near Earth Asteroid Scout. It's a big solar, well, not so big, but a solar sail. And it's going to be launched on Monday. So let's hear from Julie Castillo-Rogues, the Principal Science Investigator. She's at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory.
12: And Hi, everyone. I'm very excited to talk about any scout the Near-Earth Asteroid Scout CubeSat, the 6U CubeSat that has been developed and funded by the Advanced Exploration Systems. It's been developed between the Marshall Space Flight Center and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and over NASA centers. And Scout has two big components. One is a technology demonstration and one is about getting very important science information about an asteroid. Uh, I will talk about the science and let's run some my copy I will talk about the solar sail. So the science is about acquiring observations about the physical and the spin properties of a near earth asteroid in order to help prepare for a uh, future crew mission, and but also to understand uh, the, the hazard that this kind of object can uh, represent, a hazard to Earth. So there is a planetary defense angle uh, to, to, the, to, to the science observation. The target is called 2020 GE. It's uh, about 5 to 15 meters across. It's a class of asteroid that has never been explored by a spacecraft before. And it's interesting in that it's about the same size range as the Chelyabinsk impactor, sorry, and uh, over uh, a theory that are bullied. So um, these objects, when they crash on the atmosphere, if they are large enough, they can create a lot of light and they can be potentially dangerous to to the ground. So the planned uh, observations are both of interest to human exploration, solar system science, and planetary defense. It will take about a two-year cruise for any scout to get to the asteroid. Uh, any scout carries a small camera. It's about half of a CubeSat unit. And the uh, particularity of that camera is that it has been designed to achieve measurements with a quality similar to what's used on a big uh, space mission uh, for, for solar system science. Uh, the solar sail will allow very slow flybys, less than about 20 meters per second. So it will be, even if the asteroid is small, it will be possible uh, to observe it for about three hours and uh, to fly um, below one kilometer altitude. So we are expecting a very nice spatial resolution of the ground of about 10 centimeters per pixel. And just to give you a reference, the best images on Osiris virus tracks. Uh, had a resolution of 5 centimeters
1: per pixel. Les Johnson is the Principal Technology Investigator for NEA Scout. He's at the Marshall Space Flight Center, which is in Huntsville, Alabama.
0: Yeah, Hi, I'm Les Johnson from the NASA Marshall Space Flight Center. Um, I'll be talking about the uh, space propulsion technology demonstration of the Near-Earth Asteroid Scout. We'll be flying a solar sail that is uh, 925 square feet in area. A solar sail, for those that may not be familiar with it, is a type of propulsion system that doesn't use any fuel. Rather, we unfurl a large, lightweight, thin, reflective sail, just like a sail on a sailing ship, only this one looks like aluminum foil, a lot lighter, different material, but it's coated with aluminum to reflect sunlight. And as that light reflects from the sail, It gives up a little bit of its energy in the form of momentum, which pushes on the sail, which will give us the propulsion that we need to take Julie's science instrument to go do the imaging and the science at our asteroid of interest. Now, what's exciting about this 925-square-foot sail is that it's uh, thinner than a human hair. It's deployed with four uh, metallic booms, each of which are over 20 feet long. And all this is packaged in uh, one-third of the NEA Scout spacecraft. And that volume is about a third of a boot box. So it's really tightly packed in there. And this will be the U.S.'s first demonstration and use of a solar sail as a primary propulsion system in deep space. Uh, We've had several that have now flown in low Earth orbit as deployment demonstrations and showing that they can obtain some thrust. But for NEA Scout, we aren't just a a deployment demo. We've got to deploy, uh, be able to control the sail so that we can reflect the sunlight, to navigate, and and get to this asteroid so the science can be accomplished. Uh, The significance of this is that uh, when we've done this, this will open the capability for other small spacecraft to use this type of propulsion, which for small spacecraft gives you more total uh, uh, propulsion than any other system that can be packaged into such a small volume uh, to enable this kind of uh, of robotic deep space exploration with small spacecraft. It's not a one-size-fits-all propulsion system, but for some classes of missions, very small ones operating near the sun, uh, it'll be a whole new capability and and an exciting one because we just don't run out of fuel, which means we have a lot of mission flexibility and can can adjust uh, dynamically as we fly. So, that uh, describes the, the NEA scout? Yep, this is Les, and I'll, I'll tackle the, so, the sail part of that and let Julie talk about the asteroid destinations. Um, we, we are deployed from Artemis about three and a half hours into the flight, not the sail. That's when the spacecraft is deployed. And the solar sail won't deploy until several days after that. It could be up to a week to two after that, depending on uh, the actual launch time and, and where we are in the trajectory. So we're going to just do check out of the spacecraft, make sure that all the systems are functional, the power is working, we can call home, all that good stuff, uh, and then we'll be deploying the sail uh, sometime after the first uh, lunar flyby, so it'll be a week or two into the mission.
12: So right now we have a target available uh, for the next few months and there is a backup target that is going to be observed by the very large telescope sometime this week, just after you know, the full moon uh, stops being a- a- above Earth for astronomers. We have an opportunity to recover an NEO that has, uh, seems very good, very accessible for any scout. Uh, but we don't know its position very well, and so with the VLT images, we will be able to know its position. So if there are further delays or uh, launch delays, uh, we are covered.
1: Mihir Desai is the principal investigator of CubeSat Solar Particles. He's at the Southwest Research Institute.
8: Now I'm Dr. Mihir Desai. I'm a physicist at Southwest Research Institute, I am the principal investigator of uh, the Cusp mission, which is spelled out as CubeSat mission to study solar particles. My research focus uh, has been on uh, understanding the solar wind and space physics, uh, with a particular focus and emphasis on understanding the origin and acceleration of charged particles. These are ions and electrons uh, in solar explosions known as solar flares and coronal mass ejections. I'm very excited and really glad to be here Uh, to tell you about the CubeSat mission uh, which will actually be launched in a heliocentric orbit just like all the planets far away from the Earth's magnetic field to study the origin and causes of not just solar energetic particles uh, but also space weather. Uh, Just to give you a a little bit of brief introduction, the CubeSat mission um, to study solar particles was developed in partnership between NASA and the Southwest Research Institute, uh, NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, Uh, and and the Jet Propulsion Lab. Uh, It will really orbit our sun where it will be monitoring uh, inbound radiation and ultimately help us better understand space weather. It will also be heliophysics' first CubeSat to be placed in a sun-centric orbit.
7: Uh, Let me tell you a
8: little bit about space weather, Uh, but space weather is a set of conditions in the region very close to Earth Uh, and it's the presence of electromagnetic radiation and charged particles emitted from the sun, and that's what I'm talking about. There is the galactic cosmic rays, which are extrasolar system uh, material that streams in from outside our sun's influence, but I'm focusing here on effects from the sun. This also affects human activity and technology. Space weather from the sun comes in three forms, X-rays and gamma rays from solar flares. The charged particles are radiation, particular radiation from solar flares. And finally, space hurricanes, known as coronal mass ejections that hit the Earth and interact with the Earth's magnetic field and cause what is known as geomagnetic storms. Uh, Space weather can produce these electromagnetic uh, fields and induce extreme currents in wires, disrupt power lines, even cause widespread power outages. Uh, Space weather can also cause radio blackouts, solar radiation storms, and geomagnetic storms, as I said. Space weather can affect uh, astronauts, uh, in particular airline crews serving on polar routes uh, can reach their annual dose limits during a solar storm in one polar flight. Uh, And we've known airlines to divert their flights uh, from uh, directly, say, from New York to Hong Kong uh, and causing delays and extra fuel. Unfortunately, even after studying uh, the particles for over 50, 50 years or so, we still don't understand how solar particles are produced. Uh, CUSP mission is equipped with three state-of-the-art miniaturized instruments to measure particles from the sun and shed light on three critical problems that have really hampered our understanding of how the sun, in other words, flares in coronal mass ejections, accelerate particles to very high energies and increase radiation hazards near Earth. The first question is, what is the material that is accelerated? How exactly is this material selected and accelerated to higher energies? And finally, how does the material travel to Earth? Uh, as I said, CUSP is equipped with three state-of-the-art instruments that address all of these three questions. Uh, uh, there's the Super-thermal Ion Sensor from Southwest Research Institute that studies what is the material that is being accelerated. There is the MERIT sensor, which is, stands for the M- Miniaturized Electron and Ion Telescope from Goddard Space Flight Center, which actually measures the higher energy particles that cause the radiation uh, increase, uh, increase the radiation hazards near Earth. Um, and tell us how these particles are accelerated to very high energies. And finally, we have the vector helium magnetometer from Jet Propulsion Lab, which uh, measures the solar magnetic fields, the interplanetary magnetic fields, along which these particles travel and tell us how these particles get to us in the first place. Unfortunately, uh, as we go through this, you know, our current ability to predict the impact of the solar events is very primitive. It's like our ability to predict weather in the, in the 1940s. We have one or two isolated weather weekends in the Pacific to predict uh, what the weather would be like in New York. It just doesn't work that way. CUSP, in some sense, is a forerunner or a pathfinder to a a potential constellation of uh, low-cost CubeSats that can make such measurements in a very cost-effective fashion and serve as a pathfinder for future uh, space space weather research monitors.
1: Rafael Magnuolo is the program manager of Argo Moon. He's with the Italian Space Agency.
7: Thank you. This is Rafael Magnuolo from Italian Space Agency. I will talk about Argo Moon CubeSats on board of this uh, important mission, which is, uh, as I uh, said before, the two chapters to, for the Moon and Mars exploration. And we are proud to be part of this, uh, uh, this important milestone. Argon is a six-unit uh, CubeSat able to perform autonomous uh, navigation, target tracking, and uh, target recognition using a very complex image recognition algorithm based on uh, short photographs. The first part of the demonstration will be uh, as soon as uh, the CubeSat is deployed. The first part will be the most important one, which will be aimed to take pictures of the interim cryogenic propulsion stage. After that, CubeSat Will be able to maneuver and to put in a safe distance and uh, to perform the second part of the mission, which is the flyby of uh, the moon, taking a uh, picture of the moon's surface, as well as taking a picture of uh, Earth. Uh, ArgoMoon is uh, designed to survive in deep space up to five years and is uh, equipped with a uh, uh, payload and which. Uh, The two cameras, one is the wide angle, and one is a narrow angle to perform pictures at high resolution. Then Argonaut is equipped with a rangefinder, which is a lesser rangefinder, that is able to measure the relative distance up to 5,000 meters with a resolution of 0.1 meters. The complete configuration of Argonaut includes also the onboard a computer and data handling system, the imaging recognition software, altitude determination control system, and uh, the telemetry and telecommand and the electric power system. All the mission will be uh, controlled by ground mission control center located uh, in Turin at the architect site. Architect is the company which developed, developed uh, the Argonaut satellite for uh, other uh, contact with, uh, with the Italian Space Agency and this will be the first European satellite control center connected to both International Space Station and to NASA an Deep Space Network.
1: Well, all going well, next week we will be able to report on The Space Show the launch of Artemis 1, and it will be well on the way to the moon. And we'll have more about Artemis 1 on next week's The Space Show.